Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the programme. It was 1984. I sat the leaving and took off on a family holiday to Salt Hill, County Galway. There was no tape deck in the car, so I brought my portable stereo and a handful of cassettes. The album that stands out from that summer is Harvest by Neil Young and the song is Old Man. There I was with my whole adult life stretching out ahead of me and my mother singing along beside me. Old man, look at my life, I'm a lot like you were. As we drove in her little car around County Clare, on our day trips out from Salt Hill. When we returned home to Dublin, I got a letter from Ancorla Aluna Talaviukta, which later became Tiagusk, telling me I'd got a place on the horticulture course in the National Botanic Gardens. I didn't even have to wait for my Leaving Cert results. I was over the moon. My mother was delighted, as it was from her that I got my love of plants. She used to call our back garden her poem as she gazed at it from the kitchen window. My first day as a trainee gardener started by being sent to an area which was not accessible to the public called the pits. This was where there were glasshouses full of exotic plants and potting sheds heated by pot-belly stoves. I was met by two experienced and skilled gardeners, Peter and Jody, who set about teaching me how to mix the correct proportions of loam, sand and grit in which to root cuttings. They taught me how to propagate plants and how to recognise pests and diseases. Some of this information I have now forgotten and I need to consult the books occasionally to refresh my memory. But I will never forget Peter and Jody, both of whom are now gone to the great walled garden in the sky. Peter was from Dublin, but was very proud of his West of Ireland ancestry. In fact, he told me that he was a descendant of the High King of Connacht. He wore his royalty lightly. Jody was from County Meath, and he had a love of plant names. Big gonias, small gonias, hydrangeas, low drangeas. He used to ask me to pass him over the sack of tears so that he could cut back some unwanted stems. The songs of Merle Haggard were of utmost importance to him and many's the chat we had about country music. My course in the Botanic Gardens, or the bots as we called it, lasted three years. My family home was on the south side, so I left the house at half seven every morning and took the bus into the city centre and then another bus out to Glasnevin. This was nothing compared to one of my classmates who cycled his hand-painted green high Nelly all the way from Sally Noggin. I made lifelong friends during my time in the bots. After I graduated... I was lucky enough to find a wide variety of jobs, from Marlfield Garden Centre in Cabin 
to taking charge of the garden at the Tyrone Guthrie Centre in Annamacarrick, County Monaghan, a place that my mother enjoyed visiting. When it came to her own garden, however, she never really deferred to my expertise, having very clear ideas of her own about what she wanted. One day in the late 1990s, on a beautiful autumnal afternoon, I happened to take a walk around the far grounds, which are towards the back of the botanic gardens. I stopped to look at a particular acer. I gave it my full attention. What happened next is not easy to put into words, but I had the overwhelming realisation that all around me was connected. Nothing was separate from anything else. I looked down at the ground and I could see what appeared to be each molecule in every blade of grass. There was no time. I could have been there for a thousand years or a split second. There was no beginning and there was no end. I had no sense of fear, only a feeling of being loved. It's now over a quarter of a century later and I'm still nourished by that experience. It has helped me in times of grief and in times of worry. I know that I once discovered my true nature in the peaceful presence of plants. A discovery so powerful that it'll be part of me forever. My life has taken many twists and turns in the years gone by, but some things remain constant. I'll always be on for a walk around the bots. And whenever I hear Neil Young's song, Old Man, I sing along, just like my late mother did, because I'm a lot like she was. The weather broke recently. The bright sunlight, which seemed to offer the promise of a sweltering summer, wandered off to some other part of the globe, and we were left with the usual Irish fair. Grey skies, cloudy weather, a fine mizzle of rain. I was on the bus home from Galway City, heading to Corna in the Connemara Giltucht, where I now live. The landscape was in various shades of grey and green, the land and the sea almost folding into each other. One thing stood out, however, and Trawi, a bright patch of fine yellow sand on the jut of Cor Naharja. Cornmeal, I thought instantly. I scrambled from my notebook and wrote the word down. 
Then I opened my phone and checked an online dictionary for the Irish for cornmeal. Minhui. The poem will be in Irish. I am a poet who writes in Irish. The muse is impatient and English is all too ready to jump out to spring forth from the pen. I think of English as the hare in Aesop's fable, ready to sprint ahead, full of bravado. It's only when I avert my eyes and let English take a nap just before the finish line that I hear the patient pads of Irish coming around the bend of the poem, slowly, slowly. I recall studying a page of Irish notes for homework when I was about 14 or so. I opened the copybook. I could recognise one thing. Vichy. He was. Other handholds emerged. Buchel, Pascha, Brown, Mohochan. But then Vichy twisted into Ní Roche and Nach Roche and I was lost. It's odd. Now I can read Irish well and I can picture that copybook sheet in my mind but I can only recall those few words I could understand at the time. The rest of the page is blurry like white noise or television static. I can hold those words, buchel, posture, broan, mochachan, like pebbles in my hand. But the rest of that text flows through my fingers like fine sand or cornmeal. I'm from Donegal, the Lagan region of East Donegal, to be exact about it. Alexander Lecky once remarked that there were two Donegals a poor, rugged, Gaelic and Catholic one in the West and a fertile, planted and Protestant one in the East. The Giltuk regions of Donegal, Glaninia, Gortacharca, Gidor and so forth were far beyond the horizon of home. On clear days from my house, you can see Errigal peeking from behind the rolling hills of the Lagan like a shard of blue glass. Over there lie the Irish-speaking areas on rugged land, land that has been denuded of people for centuries through emigration, hardship and famine. Cornmeal carries another name in Ireland, of course, Peel's Brimstone. During the early part of the Great Famine, British Prime Minister Robert Peel purchased cornmeal or Indian meal to be brought into Ireland as provision for the starving people. Known in Irish as min wee, yellow meal, the grain was difficult to prepare with the meals that Irish people had to hand. Yet such was the hunger that people ate it undercooked or raw. Of all the areas impacted by the Great Famine, Irish-speaking areas were undoubtedly the worst hit. Many people died from starvation and disease. Those who could leave, left. Songs, folklore and poetry about the period leave little doubt 
as to the scale of human devastation. The language and culture of the people suffered a heavy blow as thousands died or emigrated. While the population of the country inches back to pre-famine levels, the language has not recovered. I am a poet who writes in Irish. It's not my first language, it's not my mother tongue, nor one in which I would claim mastery. My voice in English, as I speak now, is like a hammer driving the nails of place and history home. My voice in Irish is the learner's voice. It is uncertain, rootless, but for what may grow out of books and learning. And yet, I must write poetry in this language. I cannot tell you why. A kind of reparation, perhaps? A matter of simple academic interest? A desire to speak freely, but with a layer of nuance that English can never provide? Outside the bus, the damp grey wash of an evening, the patch of yellow. My pen hovers over the words, min wee, cornmeal. It's the perfect image for the bright sand of untra wee, but writing is more than just the here and now. Is it the right metaphor for this place in this language? I think of the weight of that word, a sack of meaning. I think about cornmeal eaten raw. I lift my pen from the page. I let the words blow out of my mind like fine sand. Ni scrivem and dawn. My lifelong passion for the novels of Thomas Hardy dates back to a particular afternoon in a nondescript Dublin classroom. Some inspired individual had put Hardy's masterpiece The Mayor of Casterbridge on the leaving cert and from the first page I was hooked. Michael Henchard, a disaffected young agricultural labourer, goes to a fair in the town of Dorchester and after drinking too much illicit rum sells his wife and newborn daughter to a passing sailor for five guineas. I won't spoil the ending, but it's all downhill after that. Later, studying the Victorian novel at university, I found that not everyone appreciated Hardy's stoic, clear-eyed, countryman's realism. There are few happy endings in Hardy. Tess ends up swinging from a rope, Gabriel dies of exposure, Jude sinks back into obscurity. Life is tragic, but no matter. Come spring, the ewes will be giving birth to lambs, 
the fields still hath to be ploughed and the cows milked, and in the bright May dusk the white-frocked girls will still dance around the maypole. Charles Dickens, despite his flashes of poetic genius, was too sentimental and melodramatic for my taste, and much as I admired George Eliot's profound analysis of the workings of society, I was never enthralled to her bourgeois idealism. So I emerged from college with my allegiance to Hardy still intact. A few years later, on my first encounter with my future wife, we discovered a shared passion for Hardy. It was about the only thing we had in common. But 40 years later, I can safely say it has proven to be just about enough. So, last summer, when a friend invited us to visit his home in Dorset, the location of Hardy's fictional Wessex, I jumped at the chance. For an Irish person, travelling through the English countryside is often faintly disconcerting, as in some ways it so resembles our own, but is coded so differently. The sturdy stone farmhouses, the neat towns built on Roman street grids, everything breeds continuity, heritage, harmony. The Irish landscape, on the other hand, is a palimpsest of dispossession and struggle, with the miserable architecture punctuated by the occasional outsized big house planted down threateningly among the cottages. We arrived at our friend's beautiful Tudor manor house with its 13th century stone barn and he showed us the stream running through the scullery used by the Saxon longhouse which had originally stood at this spot more than a thousand years ago. After lunch we had a wallow in the pond and I thought of Seamus Heaney and his famous poems about the boglands. If the heart of Ireland is, as he implies, a bottomless bog hole, then the heart of England must be this murky green silted pond. Our friend is nothing if not traditional, so at four we sat down in the parlour for tea and fruitcake, and then to pass the time before gin and tonics under the ancient apple trees, he suggested we visit the nearby church, which had been partly restored by Thomas Hardy in his early career as an apprentice architect. Standing in the graveyard beside the ancient tiny church, I felt a great emotion. I remembered once in the 1980s, staying in a kind of boarding house in London, presided over by a man who had had an interesting life. Born into a wealthy Jewish family in Moscow, they had fled the Russian Revolution in 1917, boarding the last boat out of Odessa as Red Army bullets whistled around them. They ended up in Alexandria, Egypt, where his family prospered. Expelled once again in 1956, they moved to Paris and eventually ended up in Hampstead, where his rambling house had become something of a home from home for European classical musicians on tour. Browsing the bookshelves, I had come across a slim volume wrapped in beige paper with the title in bold black type, identifying it as a Tauchnitz edition. It was Hardy's favourite of his own novels, and also mine, The Woodlanders, and on the flyleaf was a sticker showing it had been bought in a bookshop in Alexandria. Above this was written the date, August 1929. Later, over a suitably bohemian dinner, 
of greasy rice and burnt chicken. I asked him about the book. Surely, to a young Russian Jew, stranded on the shores of North Africa, Hardy must have seemed incredibly exotic and distant. He looked at me and said, Michael, all my life, Thomas Hardy has been my home. Now, with my hand on the warm, weathered, dorset stone, once, perhaps, worked by Thomas Hardy's chisel, I realised what he was talking about. Once you enter Hardy country, you never really leave. Through bushes and through briars I lately took my way All for to hear the small birds sing And the lambs to skip and play All for to hear the small Passion Flower on East Arran Street for Philip Casey. I note the new front door, its red sleekness. Within, bookshelves and stacks, dingy sofa and happy purpose, all laptops and research. We laugh softly as he prepares coffee, scooped in hillocks on the bent spoon, then honey and ginger cakes. The table is a smooth plateau, a heat-ringed surface. He opens a page of Lowell. I read. Later he speaks of Ulrika, all gleam and generosity. Near the window, the copulent mauve of a passion flower blooms in the yard of this city quarter. In scant sunshine, purple petals make mischief on tropical mornings. Maybank holiday a couple of years back and Tiernar Hall on the northern shores of Clubay is packed to capacity. The audience is lively. People are shuffling excitedly in their seats, waiting for the show to begin. Every generation is represented. Primary school children, their teenage siblings, parents and grandparents. They've all come to witness a community event with a difference. Sitting expectantly near the front is a sheep farmer in his mid-80s, Nail O'Donnell. His forebears were intimately involved in the scenes that are about to be depicted on stage. We've gathered to watch a homegrown play called The Banner, which tells the troubled history of this locality from a century ago. It's a story about a local community where the ordinary people are the real heroes. The play is being performed by the Burrishul Drama Group, whose members gathered oral history from Neil O'Donnell and many others 
before sitting down to write the play. As the stage lights fade up, traditional music fills the hall and a long-told story begins. The action is set in Nail O'Donnell's uncle's thatch cottage on St. Patrick's Night, 1921. Ireland's War of Independence has been raging for more than two years. The notorious Black and Tans are terrorising the countryside. On this particular evening, the Tans have come in search of the Tiernar Banner, a marching flag deeply cherished by the local community. The Tiernar Banner dates from the summer of 1917. Measuring five feet wide and almost seven feet tall, this marching banner bears two images. Porrick Pierce is on one side, under a headline written in Old Gaelic script, Remember Pierce and Easter Week 1916, while on the reverse there's a striking image of St. Patrick and the words, May God free Ireland, Tiernar forever. There is a valuable bounty out on the Tiernar banner and the Black and Tans are on a rampage to find and destroy it. For them, it symbolises the Republican aspirations of their arch-enemies, the old IRA, which has mounted an effective guerrilla campaign against the forces of the British Crown. In the immediate aftermath of the failed Easter Rising, Republicans in this corner of County Mayo commissioned the banner to be made in honour of their fallen leader. During a time of general poverty, money was scraped together in door-to-door -door collections to pay for its manufacture. And the Tiernar banner certainly wasn't cheap. Three lengths of high-quality poplin fabric, a blend of pure silk and the finest wool, were procured. Unusually, the banner's artist painted a full-length image of Porrick Pierce in an Irish volunteer's uniform, rather than depict him by the head-and-shoulder side profile that Pierce is usually recognised by. In the days before radio and television, marching banners were an important means of mass communication. The Tiernar banner's message of faith and fatherland was well understood by people throughout the Mayo countryside, regardless of their literacy or social standing. On the night this play is recalling, the Tiernar banner came very close to being discovered. The black and tan searched the cottage high and low, pushing their bayonets up the chimney and into every mattress. They roughed up Nail O'Donnell's uncle, but they never noticed that the prize they sought was actually lying before them, hidden under a second leaf of wood upon the kitchen table. Once the tans had left the cottage empty-handed, the banner was secreted away to another safe location. It spent more years evading capture, some of the time in the ceiling of a local national school. It was also hidden on a small island in Clue Bay called Inish Tubrid, which looks out on Crookpatrick. At key moments during that turbulent decade of uprising, guerrilla warfare, civil war and early statehood, the Tiernar banner was paraded proudly through the streets of Newport, Mulrani and other local villages. In subsequent decades, after Ireland became a republic, the banner made regular appearances at St. Patrick's Day parades and Easter commemoration ceremonies, after which it would be furled up and stored safely away. At the end of the performance, the uncaptured banner is marched into Tiernar Hall. To rapturous applause, the curtain falls, 
and I notice Neil O'Donnell chatting to friends and neighbours. He has a smile on his face that makes him look 20 years younger. He is rightly impressed that a part of this community's history has been captured so vividly and is being transmitted to future generations. This summer, the Mayflower sang the Hallelujah. I stood in front of a blaze of white blossoms just beginning to blush, and further down the road a rabbit was also meditating in front of the gorse. Every morning I walked through this confetti of white, pink and yellow as far as the bridge and back. I met my neighbour John. If you drive by you don't really see it, he said, even on the quad. No, you have to walk through the fields to taste salt on the sea wind. We don't know how lucky we are. Behind him, the ditch was full of mauve blackberry blossoms and wild lilies like cups waiting for wine. I travelled through tunnels of elderflower, like those tunnels described by people who have had a near-death experience, the light at the end. But this was like swimming through creamy light, breath caught again and again by the glory. This summer, I listened to those whose beloveds had died and we wrote poems to honour each life. Often we cried and I kept seeing the elder flower in my mind's eye, wondering what it would be like to shed my body, emerge into pure light, colour, sound. This summer, our neighbours helped us to cut the meadow and a forest of fern so we could move the gift of a mobile home to the back of our field. The children made it into a playhouse. It has become my writing cabin and a place for friends to come and stay. With no electricity, you can hear the wind up there, watch starlings rise from the bushes and sitting on the step, butterflies land on notebook and pen. This summer, wide-winged buzzards flew across the bonnet of my car. In the outhouse, a swallow touched my hair. And Aidan's magenta flowers cascaded over a stone wall like a lovely woman we kept glimpsing through veils of green. The fields turn gold after the harvest. We collect blackberries early, eat them with pancakes and honey. The sea wind knocks over our summer chairs and the badly designed umbrella, apples fall. Near the back door, there's a little Buddha with solar lights at his feet. He is always laughing, praying, and as the light dims, he glows. On this morning's programme, we heard A Walk in the Box by Valerie Waters Cornmeal by Lysiach Nichushtala my Home is Thomas Hardy was by Michael O'Loughlin. Passion Flower, Remembering Philip Casey by Mary O'Donnell. The Tiernor Banner was by John Egan. And This Summer 
by Lainey O'Hanlon. The music was Old Man by Neil Young. Eamon Vaughorne by Dervla Nivolachorn. Bushes and Briars, a traditional English folk song adapted by Richard Rodney Bennett and performed by Isla Cameron. Duete Irlandes in Ionor Shal was by Frank Corcoran and played by Martin Johnson on cello with Fergal Caulfield on piano. And Paddy O'Snaps, performed by Sean Smith. This morning's programme was produced by Lorcan Clancy. The broadcast coordinator is Elaine Conlon. The series producer of Sunday Miscellany is Sarah Binchy. And for more from Sunday Miscellany and other arts and culture programmes, see rte.ie forward slash culture. And to listen back to this morning's programme, go to the RTE radio app or the programme website rte.ie forward slash radio one forward slash Sunday hyphen miscellany. You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.